Good morning. Welcome to South Bay Community Church this morning. And I want to say to you, happy Veterans Day, which is today. If, if we have any veterans in the place, can I have you raise your hand just so that we can acknowledge you and see who you are? Would you guys look around and, and help me thank them? Thank you, guys. Thank you guys for your service and what you have done to just give up so much. Um, some of you guys to give up your life, your comforts, um, e even being with your family for, for your time as you served us. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel. So we thank you. I want to start off and encourage you as we, you know, we're going to be going through James. And if you have your Bibles, get ready. We're going to be in James chapter 3 today. We're looking at verses 13 through 18. So you can just get that ready. If you have a Baywatch, that's our program that you received when you walked in. It's all there, and you can download our SBCC app, and our outline is there as well. But I want to start off, I want to um, remind you guys, I don't know if you guys get Time Magazine, but every year there's this famous issue called the Time Magazine Person of the Year. You guys familiar with that? Time Person of the Year, and each year they'll choose the most influential newsmaker of that year. And so, for example, 2013, we saw Pope Francis grace the cover of Time Magazine. He was the person of the year. 2012, we saw Barack Obama. He was the, the greatest newsmaker of the year in 2012. And then one year, 2010, we saw who, whom you guys, I'm sure you've heard the name, in 2010, Mark Zuckerberg, the creator of Facebook. Do you know who was the Time Person of the Year in 2006? I was shocked. I was shocked when I got, the, I got the magazine, I picked it up, and I saw that I was the 2006 person of the year. I'm serious, no joke. You can read my resume. I literally put it under my achievements section on my resume. I was a 2006 time person of the year. And quite frankly, so were you, and you, and you, and you, and you. You were the 2006 time person of the year. Why? Because 2006, according to the magazine, that was the year where user-generated content and social media blew up. I mean, it blew up that year. Sites like YouTube and MySpace, personal blogs became the thing because now all of a sudden, anyone could become someone. And so everyone jumped on it. Why, why was it so popular? Because now you could become popular, and overnight you can just put yourself out there and become a sensation, right? And so people started creating their own shows, writing their own blogs, producing their own music. All of a sudden, people are putting themselves out there, sharing their own lives through their own pictures. And so 2006, Time Magazine's Person of the Year is you. And I think what that article shows us, it reveals to us something that's innate inside of all of us. It's not a thing that's so 2006. This desire in us to be people of significance, to be known, to be recognized, isn't a 2006 thing. That's been in us since Genesis. And it's been in us throughout the years. It's in us today. And it was in us during the time of James, as he wrote James chapter 3. And today I want to show you how he addresses some of these people who were so eager to be people who are recognized, people of significance. And so let's, let's read this, but before we do, I want to stop and I want to ask you to join me as we pray and ask the Lord to lead us into this time. And as we do, since we're all gathered together as a, as a body, as a community, let's remember those right now who are uh, really devastated by the fires going on all throughout our state, even in our own county. Um, let's pray for the victims and also for the servicemen and women and the first responders who are right now fighting for people's lives. Okay, so would you guys join me and let's come before God. And so God, we want to stop and take a moment to thank you Lord, that we have a place like this, Lord, that we sit here in the safety of the sanctuary. And God, we don't want to take that lightly. We don't want to take that for granted. Lord, you have been so gracious to us because we realize that there are people right now who maybe would be in church like us this morning who are running for their lives, who are trying to figure out what they're going to do because things are burning. 
So God, we pray that you'd be so gracious to them. God, I pray that like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who in the flames, they saw your presence, God, we pray that they too would somehow see that you are near or somehow reveal your glory, your, your presence to them, God. Lord, would you lift them up? And we pray for the servicemen and women and the first responders who are giving up their lives to fight this fire and to fight for those who have been displaced, Lord. We pray for the volunteers and the churches and organizations and the firefighters and the policemen who are doing everything they can right now, Lord. And Lord, we realize, Lord, without you, we're, we're hopeless. So God, I pray that they would see you and call out to you, God. Lord, our hearts go out to them and uh, we also pray for the victims of the, of the shootings this past weekend in that very community. Lord, they didn't even have time to, to recover from the grief of that, and they're going through this. So, God, be merciful, please. And Lord, as we go into um, the study of your word, we pray that you would open up our hearts to receive. Give us humility and the eyes to see as you would see things. God, we ask you as our good shepherd and, our, and the Holy Spirit in us to lead us into your truth. And so we pray this in one voice we say in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So James chapter 3, if you guys remember last week, we started in verse 1. And, and remember how he opened up? He said, not many of you should desire to be teachers, brothers and sisters, for we know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And I briefly mentioned this, this idea that the teachers in that day, Jewish teachers, also known as rabbis, they were held in high regard. Right, Because their position was one of privilege, it was one of power even, one of influence. Right? It was said in some Jewish circles that, that you give greater honor to your rabbi. And if your rabbi and your parents were to be held captive for ransom, your priority would be first to set free your rabbi. Why? Well, because it was said, it was believed that your, your parents brought you into the life of this world, but your rabbi will lead you into the life of the next. He has eternal influence in, in your life. And so they would revere and, and literally throw themselves and sit at the feet of their rabbis, their masters. There's a saying that they would be covered in their dust so that they could be like them. So no doubt there's going to be people who, who, who long for that position, that, that recognition and that respect from others. And James, seeing right through the hearts of some of these people, he addresses them. And here's what he says in James 3, verse 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly and spiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So you guys pause, pause right there. And so what James is doing right now is he's just drawing a line in the sand and he's making a distinction between two different kinds of pursuits for wisdom. And, and I want to start over here because he divides it and he says there's some of you who are pursuing wisdom, but where is that coming from? What's driving that? And he says in verse 14, well, it's not from above. He says, there's some of you who you're driven by bitter jealousy. In some versions of your Bible, it will say bitter envy and selfish ambition. You're jealous because you see people who's getting loved on and respected and honored by all these people, and you, you want that. You have the selfish ambition. You want to put yourself above the rest. He says that that is the person that, I, that I'm talking about right now. Now, I realize as we're trying to see the relevance of God, uh, God's word in our lives, I realize that not many of you guys actually care to be wise teachers. Like, I, I get it. Most of you aren't thinking right now, man, I wish I was on stage right now preaching the word of God. Like, that's, that's not most of our desires. And that's okay, because I think the core of what James is trying to get at right now, the core of the matter is, is the motive of our hearts. What is, what, is, what is the condition of your heart? What are the motives that lie within? When your coworker or your colleague succeeds and gets that recognition, how does that affect you? When a classmate of yours or maybe your best friend gets that award and now that person is the one that everybody wants to go to, 
What kind of feelings does that rouse inside of you? When your sibling in your household gets favored way more than you, what does that make you want to do? When that person on social media gets more likes and more follows and more shares, how does that make you feel? When that player on your team who you grew up playing with is now the, the star player that gets that starting position that you've always wanted, how does, how does that motivate you and drive you? And I, and I want to say beware because maybe your, 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 your crowd, the ones you're trying to get recognition from, isn't the multitudes. Maybe it's even just one person. But beware the kind of pursuit that drives your decisions and your actions. Beware of any bitter jealousy or envy. Beware of selfish ambition. Because it's common. It's a common motivational message to, to look at those around you and let them inspire you by their success for you to work harder, train better, be better. And it sounds innocent and great. That sounds like a great motivational poster, right? It makes a good commercial. Train harder. Work harder. Become better. And yet James has strong words about that kind of message. His words are strong about what, where that kind of message comes from. And he makes very clear that it doesn't come from heaven. Verse 15, he says, it's from the world. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. He goes so far to say it's, it's, it has demonic influence. And those are words that, that should make us tremble and really seriously take stock of our own hearts. God, what is causing me to do the things I do and what drives me in this lifetime? Be careful because demonic influence is, is prevalent. And, and, you know, I don't know about you guys. When I think about demonic influence, I tend to think of like poltergeist-like activity, seances and eyes rolled back and shrieking and screaming. That's demonic to me. And you remember what the scriptures say, that the devil is what? He's not the guy in the red tights and the, and the red cape and the pitchfork and the goatee and these horns and, and, and walks around like making himself known like we often see in the cartoons. No, the Bible says he is one who disguises himself as an angel of light. And great motivational messages can come out from the world and yet beware of demonic influence. So what drives you? Why do you want to be wise? Why do you want to be a teacher? Why do you want to be whatever you're trying to be right now? And then, then James now flips it. Now, now he, he talks about a, a pure kind of wisdom that truly comes from heaven. And he shows you this picture by contrasting the person who has bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Look what he says in verse 17 about real wisdom. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then, would you circle that word then, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James, what does wisdom from heaven look like? What does that picture look like? And, and he tells us, I'm going to put verse 17 up for you guys again. But he says, first of all, it's pure. It, it, it's pure. And then I, I had you circle the word then. Why did I have you circle then? Because that's a connecting adverb. And, and that then separates pure from the rest of the characteristics of wisdom that, that, that James gives us. But why does pure stand alone? Well, well, pure stands alone because what James is showing us is that Purity is, is really the motive that drives us to want wisdom, right? Purity is the motive that stands in stark contrast to the motive of selfish ambition or, or jealousy or envy. And so when your motives are pure as opposed to being impure, then that causes us to want and to desire the wisdom from heaven. And then when that, hev that heavenly wisdom comes down, then he gives us a list of these characteristics of wisdom. I call it the fruit of wisdom. It's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit, right? Remember we did the whole series on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Well, these are the fruits of wisdom. And in no particular order, because no, no characteristic here has priority over another. All of these things should be manifesting in your life if you're truly wise. Just like all the fruits of the Spirit should manifest in your life if you are in the spirit. So 
I want to take a look at these. Look at James uh, 3.17 again. What, what pops out to you? Well, what pops out to me in no particular order is gentle. To be gentle. So would you guys write this down? Wisdom from heaven is gentle. It's gentle. And, and I say this because James actually mentions this a couple times in this passage. So obviously it's important, important to him. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I gentle in my actions, in my words, in my relationships? He actually mentioned it once before this list. Look at verse 13, that first verse we read. He said, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness. Circle that word meekness of wisdom. Meekness is a synonym of gentleness. You could translate it either way. Some versions like the NASB will say gentleness. So this is obviously important to James. And here's what I want to show you. He uses a really cool word in the original language, which was Greek. And for meekness, gentleness, he uses the word prautes. It's a Greek word, prautes. Why is this so cool? Why am I talking about this? Because prautes or meekness, gentleness, isn't what we typically think of. It's not a meekness that comes out of weakness. It's not gentleness because you lack strength. No, instead this word that, that James uses, prautes, it's a meekness that comes when, when you have, like, power, power that's under restraint. Because when I typically think of weakness um, or, or meekness, gentleness, and someone who's wise, like, what do you picture? When you, when you picture someone who's wise and meek and gentle, like, don't you picture some, like, old Chinese guy, like some tai, tai Chi master, or, or I don't know about you, honestly, the first thing that came up was Yoda. Like, I think about Yoda, right? Someone who's slow and frail, and that's, that's wise and meek to me, but no, Prautus expresses power with reserve, strength that's bridled and under control. So let me show you a picture of Prautus, one who is wise and meek. It looks more like this. Not Pastor Gary, the horse. I'm talking about the horse. Because the horse, in my commentaries, in two commentaries, it told me that it's kind of like this horse. We talked about this last week, where it has so much power and so much strength, but it's been broken and bridled under the control of its master. It will go where the master wants it to go. The master directs it where it should go, and his strength is under control. He's not weak, but he submits. And here's the thought. If you have the God of this universe, the powerful God of this universe who created the heavens and the earth living inside of you, like his spirit lives inside of you, understand you have tremendous power and potential. You have giftings and ability that are beyond yourself. And we see personalities in the church where they have this potential and power and they get ahead of God and, and they have unbridled confidence. Like, I'll go there and plant this church. I'll go and preach to these multitudes. I'll sit here and, and debate this guy's ear off. And yet the one who is wise, the person who has wisdom from heaven, submits his potential to, to God and says, God, where do you want me to go with this gift you've given me? Who do you want me to talk to? Who do you want me to disciple? How should I speak to these people or preach to these people? And in which manner should I do it? Do you want me to plant a church here? And we're taking everything within us and we're saying, God, you have control of my life. I have strength, but I want that power to be reserved and given to you. So gentleness is strength, submission to God. And the one who is wise is the one who will surrender to him. So that, we start there, gentle. What else does it look like? I want to take you back to verse 17. Let's look at that list. And another one that pops out to me is an openness to reason, an openness to reason. Would you guys write that down? Wisdom from heaven is open to reason, open to reason. So the idea here is, what does that mean? Well, the idea is that you're teachable. Someone who's open to reason is teachable. Am I open to suggestions? Am I open to keep on learning? Or do I insist stubbornly that, I have all the right ways. I don't know, speaking of ways, any of you guys use ways on your phone? Like GPS? 
app, yeah. Waze is a great GPS app. Um, I go to it often. But there's one place I do not need GPS for. If there's one place in the South Bay that I don't need directions for, it's, it's to the beach, right? And you could drop me out of the airplane and, and land me anywhere in Southern California, and I will tell you how to get to El Porto. That, that's the beach where I typically go surfing. I've been going there for years and years. I could go, get there with my eyes closed, so I don't need GPS for that. Well, one day, it was, it was uh, during a busy time in the morning, I was supposed to meet a friend there, and so... I used Waze. I, I put it in. I put it. I put in the address, and I didn't need it for directions. I needed it for the ETA because I wanted to tell my friend what time I was going to arrive. So I put it in, and it was wrong because it, it told me that I would get there in 20 minutes when I know it's at least 30 minutes, usually 35 minutes at that time of the day. And plus, it was giving me directions with streets I've never even heard of. So this is obviously wrong. So I put it down, and I drove my way. I drove my way. Well, after that, another, mo- um, another day, uh, once again, I was going to meet my friend at El Porto, wanted to find the ETA, put in El Porto parking lot, and it's lying to me again. It's saying 20 minutes again, when I know it's at least 30 minutes, sometimes 35. And so, again, it's giving me streets I've never heard of. Put it down. I don't need you, ways. I know the way. No joke, true story, one more time, days go by, I put it in again, and it, it just keeps lying to me, like 20 minutes. So I say, okay, okay, let's see what you got. And so I, I decide I'm going to follow it this time. So I follow it, and I'm going down these streets I've never heard of because they're, apparently they're residential streets, and they're side streets off of the main street, off of PCH. And so I'm following it, and then 20 minutes later, I'm kicking myself in the middle of the El Porto parking lot. Because I got there in literally 20 minutes when all this time, all these years, I've been going my way, which has been taking me 35 minutes right through all the traffic. And I, and I, I step back and I look at that situation and I ask myself, why in the world do I insist that my way is right and my way is better than this GPS satellite system who has the map, the big picture? The, the satellites have the big picture. It knows all the routes, and its purpose is to give me the best, most efficient, most effective route. That's its job. Why do I think I'm smarter than the computer? And all this time, I, I insist, no, I got the right way. And I look at my life. Sometimes I step back, and, and why in the world do I think that my way is greater than God's way, who is higher than the satellites, who, who is the author of the big picture, who knows all my paths and determines for me the best path possible. Like Waze, Waze is good. Like 95% of the time it's right. It's 95% of the time. His ways, 1,000%. And why do I insist that, no, I got it down? Are you open to reason? Are you open to hearing from the Lord? If wisdom, and, and I defined this a few weeks back, that wisdom can be defined as seeing things through God's perspective. Seeking to see things the way God sees things. And if God is this God who is above the heavens and above the satellites, and he sees my life, and he sees all my paths, and he sees my relationships, and he sees my work, and he sees my career, and he, and he sees everything about me, then am I open to hearing from him, and maybe, maybe from his perspective, there's a better way for me than what, what I've been insisting on. Maybe there's a better way to do what I've been doing or to try to get to where I've been trying to go. Or am I, am I wise enough to be open to reason with other people, understanding that sometimes God puts counsel in my life, people in the church who are going to speak into my life and, and show me his perspective through them. And speaking of perspective, if I, if I can plug an announcement that Todd made earlier, this Saturday we have the Practical Parenting Workshop. We're flying Dr. Josh Rob out from uh, Nashville, Tennessee to come here, and we praise God that he made room in his schedule to be able to, to be here again this year. But if there's one area in our life where, where we need help, where we need direction, it's parenting. If there's an area where we need to be open to learn, it's parenting. Some of us, we get that because some of the parents in here, you feel lost and you need direction. 
Well, I hope you're going to come, 830, this, this Saturday, here, here in the worship center. It's free, okay? Like, I mean, it, it costs money to bring them out, but we want to bless you. We want as many parents to come and benefit from what he can offer, so, so it's for you. And then some of you guys are like, no, nah, man, I've nailed parenting. <laughs> like, I, I've got it down. And yeah, I get your kids are perfect, and they don't sin, and they're, 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 they're good. I get that. No, you need to come this Saturday, okay? Because you too need to be open to a perspective that, that may come from heaven and, and perhaps God has insight for you. Are you willing to learn? Are you teachable? And it, it could literally change the course of your parenting and the, the course of your child's life, not just in practices you learn, maybe in principles that change everything. So again, this Saturday, 8.30. But the, the, the point here for all of us is God sees the map of our lives. He's God over all. Am I open to reason? Am I willing to put my ways aside and be open to his ways? Because honestly, my ways, maybe 95% correct. His ways, 100%. So we got to be gentle. We got to be open to reason. Let's look at verse 17 again. Let me put it back up for you guys. Verse 17. And what else pops out to me? Well, the last word, sincere. Sincere pops out. Would you guys write this down in your notes? Wisdom from heaven is sincere. So ask yourself, do I always mean what I say and do I say what I mean? Is my heart sincere or am I a hypocrite? That would be the opposite. Am I a performer? You know, the, the word that James uses here is a great word uh, in the Greek. It's a nupokritas. And in, in Greek, a is, it negates the word, right? So, so when you think about the word asexual, it's without sexuality. Abiotic is w- without life. Aupokritas is a hypocrisy, without hypocrisy. So to be sincere, the, the word that's translated, when you're sincere, that means I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'm not performing. I don't have a mask on. What you see is who I am. And a wise person is one who realizes it's always better. It's always best to be sincere. Whereas some people in the world, they will strive for significance or recognition or whatever their goal is by putting on a mask, being someone they're not, with hidden agendas, putting on a performance. I'll never forget that day when Monica and I, we were sitting um, in this room in front of this table, and we were kind of nervous, like we were nervous. And the guy comes in, and he sits down, and all of a sudden, we start talking, and all our nerves were washed away. These walls that we had built up around our hearts just kind of broke down because this guy actually cared about us. Like he was really interested in our marriage and our family and our life. And, and he, then he asked me, he says, so what do you do? And I have to be honest, I, I sometimes hesitate to tell people I'm a pastor because when you tell people you're a pastor, they get funny, right? They get funny in a lot of ways, and you never know what's going to come out after that. But I felt comfortable with him. I said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden, his eyes lit up, and his face, like, started glowing. He says, you, you are. He's like, I'm spiritual, and I'm on a journey. And he started talking about his life journey, how, how he's been seeking truth. And when a pastor hears that, what's going on? Like exclamation points are going on in my mind. And he's talked about how he's explored Islam and he's gone to the mosques. He's gone into Eastern philosophy and all the religions of East Asia. He's explored even Mormonism, dabbled in that. And he says, man, I'd be open to Christianity. When you say that to a pastor, it's over, right? So like, so I, I jump in and I start sharing my faith and giving testimonies. We're going back and forth. This was in San Diego, right? He's like, where's your church? I said, well, it's in the South Bay. He's like, oh my gosh, I have family out in L.A. When I come, can I come to your church? I'm like, yeah, of course. And I start telling him about you guys. I'm sharing with him about how amazing of a church you guys are and what worship is like and what the culture is like. And we're, we're just, like, our hearts are just, like, being knit right now. And this goes on for, like, an hour and a half. And Monica's just sitting there, like, wow, when are you going to shut up, Greg? Because, <laughs> like, like, I was so into this. We're going back and forth, and I just made this new friend, and he asked, can I get a name card for a church? I give him a name card because he won our hearts. And then when he won our hearts, 
Then he gave us a brochure for the timeshare that he was trying to sell us. <laughs> and uh, he, he put out this presentation, and, and Monica and I, we, we stood our ground, and we kept looking at each other, and we knew we couldn't afford a timeshare right now. And we told him, I'm sorry, we're, we're not, we can't buy this timeshare. And all of a sudden, Dr. Jekyll turned into Mr. Hyde. Like, all he's like, what? Why wouldn't you do this? You'd be stupid not to do this. You'd be foolish. This is such a good deal. And when he saw that we weren't budging, he goes, fine, good luck. And he gets up and he walks out of the office. And that was the last time we saw him. Like, literally, we're sitting there in that office. We look at each other and we're like, what just happened? What I thought was a sincere new friend turned out to be a performing phony. And I'm not knocking any of you guys. Some of you guys sell timeshares, and if that's you, <laughs> you can email me at Gary at SouthBayCommunityChurch.com. <laughs> but no, it, maybe you're in sales. I was in sales. I'm not knocking what you do. I'm bringing to attention, how do you do it? How do you do it? Because you could be wise and sincere and be real with who you are, or you could put on a mask and perform. James says, be sincere. He says, don't be a hypocrite. Be a hypocritical. Ah, hypocritas, without hypocrisy. Be sincere. In other words, you do you. Like you do you and let God do the rest. You just trust that he is going to work through you. And I'm telling you, Christians, that sometimes there's some of us in this world, we'll do whatever it takes to succeed. Whatever it takes to gain position, to gain privilege, to gain recognition, to gain business, to gain sales, and God forbid ever, to gain souls. That we'd be someone who are not just to try to win what we need to win. That's the wisdom of this world. And yet, yet the Bible tells us that there's this, there's this better way, an attractiveness, that, that in the long run, if you would just be sincere, in the long run, it's going to draw people. People will be drawn to your sincerity and to your cause. And if your cause, church, is the gospel, if your cause is Christ, then sincerity is not only effective, it's necessary. Like, it is necessary. Why? Because nothing drives a person away from the church more than hypocrisy. Just like Monica and I walked out of that office, we walked away glad that we didn't buy in and we never want to go back to that place. God forbid anybody walks away from the church and says, I'm glad I walked away. I never want to go back because of hypocrisy. So what does heavenly wisdom look like? It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's sincere. Then I look at this verse again, verse 17. I'll put it up for you guys. And what pops out, well, I see peaceable. Peaceable. Would you guys write this in? Wisdom from heaven is peaceable. In other words, it's peace-loving. It loves peace. So ask yourself this. Do, do I love peace? Do I strive for unity? You know, you could really tell a person's heart and what's important to a person just by listening to their prayers. You guys realize that? Because people will pray what's close to their hearts. When I, when I get to pray with my kids at night before they sleep, we kind of go in a circle. There's a routine. And so we'll start with the youngest first. So Karis will pray, then Evan will pray, then, then I'll pray. And I know what's important to them. Because Karis, she'll start off and she'll pray the same thing every night. I'll tell you what she's going to pray tonight. I know what she's going to pray. It always starts off like this. Dear God, please help me to have no bad dreams or no dreams at all. Every night. And I asked her, I said, why, why do you pray that? And she said, well, because I had a bad dream. And that happened like a couple years ago. And so it's so important to her, God, please help me to have no bad dreams or no dreams at all. I, I was talking to Evan yesterday. He says, I don't even want to have good dreams. I said, why don't you want to have good dreams? He goes, well, because sometimes I'll get a really cool thing at Target. And then I wake up and it's like, hey, where did it go? <laughs> right? <laughs> Okay, no dreams at all, then it is. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what Evan prays. This is what Evan prays. Every night he prays, he says, Dear God, please help no one to get hurt on the blacktop at school. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he prays this all the time. And, and I, I asked him, I said, Evan, like, why do you pray that? You know what his answer was? He says, because you could get hurt on the blacktop. So, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> like, 
That makes sense. And, and like that's important to him. And so, so, so he prays that you can tell a person's heart and what's important to them by listening to their prayers. You know, Jesus' most thorough prayer in the Bible comes from John chapter 17. And this is a prayer he prays. He cries out to God the Father right before he was about to be crucified on a cross. Like he knew he was about to die. And so we know he's not just chit-chatting with the Father. This is like close to his heart. So what does he pray for? I want to read you this. John 17, verse 20. He's not just praying for his disciples, the 12. He's actually praying for the people who would believe based on the disciples' message. So in other words, he's praying for you. Like he's praying for me. This is crazy. Jesus is praying for us. He says in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, circle that word one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, circle that, even as we are one, circle that word. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, circle that word, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So what's Jesus praying for here? What's the heart of what he's praying for? That you and I, that we would be one. That there would be unity among brothers and sisters. That there would be this peace between us. Like Jesus, out of all the things you could have asked the Father on my behalf, you could have prayed for good health. You could pray that I find a good spouse and have a beautiful family with many kids. You could pray that I would be cancer free and that I wouldn't be homeless. That I'd be successful and prosperous in all, in all, all my pursuits. And Jesus, out of everything, you pray that we would be one. That there would be unity between us. And we see that is the heartbeat of heaven. That his people would be at peace. And so the person who has wisdom from heaven is a person who strives to close the gaps between us. To close the gaps between us spiritually. That we would be united in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus. That you would strive to close the gaps relationally. That through love and grace and forgiveness and mercy, we would be united in Christ. As opposed to, to this person who not, he doesn't strive to close the gaps. He, he strives to broaden the gaps. That's the person who wants to stand alone and stand separate above the rest being seen as, as one who is different from all the others. So what is your heart? Do you strive to create peaceful unity with others, or do you live for selfish separation? Are you trying to stand out alone above the rest? We go on to James 3.17. Look at that verse one more time. We had gentle, open to reason, sincere, peaceable. What else is there? Well, I see impartial. Actually, no, I, 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 I see, I see uh, yeah, impartial. Impartial is not showing favoritism. So I think about being impartial means showing equal treatment. So would you guys write this down? Wisdom from heaven shows equal treatment. Wisdom from heaven shows equal treatment. It's this idea of I see people the same. There's no favoritism. Am I a person who sees people, no matter whether, the, whether they're rich or poor, black or white, yellow or brown, sin or saint, do I see them the way God sees them? You know, Pastor Gary did such a great job teaching on impartiality and not showing favoritism when we were in James chapter 2 just a few weeks back. If you missed that message, go back on YouTube or our website. Watch that message because he deals with impartiality in full. And so I, I don't need to repeat that message, but let me say this about showing equal treatment as it relates to wisdom. Remember, if, if wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective and, and seeing things through the eyes of God, then, then we need to see through the eyes of God that everyone needs a Savior, that everyone needs forgiveness, that every soul needs Jesus. That if we can see through his perspective, we see that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him 
would not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone equally needs the gospel. In the summer of 1976, New York City was being terrorized by the serial killer. He went by the name of Son of Sam. And all throughout that summer, he would go and terrorize the city, killing innocent people with his 44 caliber, caliber handgun. And, and he was also known as the 44 caliber killer. And when he would kill these innocent people, he would taunt the police, the NYPD, by leaving letters, telling the police, there's more to come. Just expect it. And that summer, he led the NYPD on New York City's greatest manhunt in history. Well, when he was finally caught in 1977, he had already killed six innocent people while shooting and injuring many more than that. But when he was caught, his name, David Berkowitz, who went by Son of Sam, he confessed and he pled guilty to everything. And there's almost like this arrogance about it. Like he, he loved this attention and recognition he was getting. He pled guilty and he was sentenced to 365 years in prison. And, and as he shared his story, he, he, he confessed. He said, I grew up with this fascination with witchcraft and Satanism and the occult. I would watch countless horror movies and satanic movies. And he says, by age 22, I'm convinced that the devil had captivated my mind, that I, I was captivated by demons. And he said that everything in his life at that time seemed to be pointing him to Satan. He said he got a copy of the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. And he was captured by this philosophy. And he would start innocently, he said, innocently practicing the occult and, and these incantations. He says, I'm convinced I was influenced by the demonic. So he gets locked up, 1977, 1987, after 10 years being in prison. Someone in the uh, prison yard comes up to him. His name is Rick, and he introduces him to Jesus. And he says, David, God has a plan for you, and he has a purpose for your life. And he gave him a Gideon's Bible, a little Gideon's Bible. David said he took it back to his cell and he started reading through the Psalms. And he says, by the time I got to Psalm 34, he says, I was overcome by the love God had for me. And he writes this, and I get this from his personal testimony, okay? I'm reading this from his personal testimony. You can go to his website that's run by a church today. But he says in his testimony that that night I, I came before God and I confessed to the Lord that I was sick and tired of being evil. So I'm sick and tired of being evil. Deliver me. And he expressed his sorrow and repentance for all the heinous crimes he had committed. It's been over 30 years. And David Berkowitz, who was once known as the son of Sam, refuses to, to say those words. He doesn't want to be known as the son of Sam. He wants to be known as the son of hope. That's the power of the gospel. He, he says, I'm stuck in here. I, have, I really have no chance at parole. But I realize God's call on my life, I realize his purpose, and he's in prison ministering to the, to the inmates there, sharing with them good news, helping counsel them through their, through their issues. He says, this is God's call on my life. And I wanted to share this story with you because I think it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Like this, this is a picture of a God who is impartial. He does not show favoritism. Whether you are an evil dictator or a corrupt politician, or a satanic serial killer. Maybe you're a radical terrorist. God pursues you still. Like everyone deserves an equal treatment with the gospel. Everyone needs forgiveness. I had already decided in my mind that I was going to share this story because, because of that very point. But imagine how pleasantly surprised I was as I'm reading David Berkowitz's testimony when he writes this. This is from his own words. He says, one of my favorite passages of scripture is Romans 10, 13. It says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here it is clear that God has no favorites. He rejects no one, but welcomes all who will call upon his name. That's coming from personal experience. That a serial killer like me should be saved. That's the power of the gospel. 
the one who is wise, will see the world through his eyes and see that everyone is needy for Jesus. Now I share that with you guys because, because it makes that point, but I realize that as I share that, some of us, like that, man, that doesn't sit well. Like it doesn't, right? Like how, how could it be that a serial killer, a satanic serial killer, can take the lives of so many innocent people and ruin the lives of all the friends and family around those innocent people, and then in a moment, like, give their life to Jesus and be forgiven of it all. There's, like, this injustice about that. And some of us, if, if you are honest with yourselves, I don't know if I like that. One professor heard of the serial killer who gave his life to Christ in prison, and he said to the pastor who was discipling that serial killer, he said to the pastor, if God would allow a serial killer like that in heaven, then I don't want to be there. Right, and I, I think that's the sentiment in many people's hearts, and maybe it's the sentiment in your heart. And if that's you, I pray that, that you right now would ask for wisdom, because here's the final characteristic of one who has heavenly wisdom. I'm going to put up 17 again for you. Verse 17 says, they are full of mercy and good fruits. They are full of mercy and good fruits. Would you guys write this down in your notes? Wisdom from heaven loves mercy. Wisdom from heaven loves mercy. So the question is, do I love mercy? Like, do I rejoice when people experience the forgiveness of God, even if they're serial killers or terrorists or politicians? Do I love when the mercy of God sets a person free? Because the one who has wisdom from heaven sees God do his work, and when God mercifully rescues a person out of their physical poverty, out of their mental sickness, out of their spiritual depravity, that should do something in your heart. Micah 6.8, right, this kind of sums it up. This is what the Lord requires of us. It sums it all up. Micah 6.8 says, he has shown you, O mortal, O, o man, O woman, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly? And to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To love mercy. We're to people, be people who love mercy. And I get it. It's not natural of us. Right after earlier service, 9 a.m., I'm in the lobby. I'm talking to a man, and I love his honesty. He says, hey, but what happens if I don't, if I don't love the guy who shot up and killed those 12 people at Borderline Bar this past week? He said, like, what if I'm happy he's dead? I said, well, that's real. Like, thanks for your honesty. I said, yeah, it's not natural to, to want him to experience mercy. But that's why we need wisdom from heaven. Because that's not natural. But God, would you help me to see people the way you see people? Would you give me your kind of heart and your kind of perspective? Then right after I talked to him, I talked to a lady in our church. And we're talking there about that same killer. And all of a sudden, we're talking about, hey, but what is his story? What's his story? What drives him to do such a thing? And it's, it, it's, it's a fact that he was a Marine vet. And the speculation, and I'm not making any conclusions, okay, but what if, what if he was suffering from PTSD? What if he got to a place because he was giving up his life to fight for us? Like he, he was trying to do something good with it. What if? And sometimes if we zoom back and we're just open to reason, and willing to zoom out and, God, what is the story? What's his story? Then that should change something. In it. That's wisdom. So, God, help me to see people the way you see people. Help me to see that there's souls that need to be saved. Just like my soul needed to be saved. God, give me wisdom. Help me to love mercy. And so that, that's wisdom from heaven. James gives it to us. He sums it up. This is a picture of what heavenly wisdom looks like. It's a person who is gentle. It's a person who's open to reason. It's a person who's sincere. It's a person who's peaceable. It's a person who shows equal treatment. It's a person who loves mercy. So what does your life look like? It comes down to this. How do you pursue the things in this world and what's driving you? Are you pursuing things because of your selfish ambition and jealousy, 
or are you pursuing heavenly wisdom? Because when you live out these things, gentleness, open to reason, sincere, peaceable, equal treatment, loves mercy, what should your life look like? What do you see? I don't know about you guys, but I, I see the gospel. I see the gospel. This is the gospel-driven life. So here's the takeaway truth. Would you write this down in your notes? The person who lives according to the wisdom of heaven is gospel-driven. That's what life is about. I have died to my selfish ambitions. I'm not living for the things of this world. I am now heaven-focused. I have died to my jealousy and my bitter envy, and the only jealousy I now experience is a kind of divine jealousy we see in Exodus 25, where, where God is jealous for these people who should be his, and yet they've given their hearts over to other gods. That's the gospel-driven wisdom that we are to have. Gospel-driven wisdom. Their hearts cry God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This kind of wisdom says, no, my kingdom come, my will be done. Heavenly wisdom, they are not self-centered. They are Christ-centered. They are not self-glorifying. They are Christ-exalting. Not egocentric, but Christocentric in all that I do and all that I pursue. And so, church, I pray. I pray that in everything we do, we will seek wisdom from heaven. On an individual level and as the church of Jesus Christ, that, that our driving motivation in everything would be purely for the glory of God and for the kingdom of Christ. Real wisdom is gospel-driven wisdom. Amen? Amen? Would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? And so, God, we come before you, and we first want to confess with our hearts the ways we have tried to go in our own ways. Lord, where we insisted, we know what, what my life is about, and yet, God, we've, we, we realize that sometimes it's driven by jealousy or envy or selfish ambitions. God, we confess that we repent of that now. God, come into our hearts and help us to live according to your way. Lord, we, we acknowledge that you see the big picture of my life. You have the better ways. You've revealed it to us in your word. And so help us to follow you, to surrender and submit ourselves to you. So God, give us wisdom. Help us to pursue your glory, to make Christ known and exalted in every area of our life and our church. God, we, uh, we thank you, God. Be glorified. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for saving all of us. We were all needy for Jesus. So, Lord, we praise you. Thank you, God. And one last thing, God, we pray that no one gets hurt on the blacktop.